Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. Well, it's finally here, the premiere episode of Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann's highly anticipated series adaptation of The Last of Us. Adapted from Naughty Dog's 2013 critically acclaimed game series, The Last of Us follows smugglers Joel and Tess who are tasked with smuggling a mysterious girl named Ellie across an America ravaged by a fungal outbreak in search of answers and second chances. And joining me once again is returning friend of the show, GameSpot producer, and one-third of the Nuclear Fridge podcast, Jake Decker. Welcome back to the show, man. Hello. Thank you for having me. Excited to chat about this show because I'm a big fan of The Last of Us. I enjoyed this first episode quite a bit, so I think it'll be a, be a good discussion. You were kind of the obvious person for me to have on because we not only chatted about The Last of Us in length for Safe Room, my gaming podcast, but our first look at The Last of Us didn't exactly blow us away. Um, so I'm eager to kind of find out how this first episode, this long feature length episode, landed for you. Yeah, I'm excited. Lots to talk about. Lots to talk about. I think we should probably dive into just the casting first and foremost, right? Because I think that even though like I'm a massive fan of Pedro Pascal, I'm a fan of also, you know, Bella Ramsey from her stint on Game of Thrones, when you love a source material as much as we do, there's still some trepidation, right? That the people that they're going to be hiring are going to be able to pick up those, you know, that very capable uh, performances of the original game. So for you, um, you know, how did that initial casting land for you? Interesting, I guess, because when they first announced that it was uh, Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey, I was like, okay, I really like both of those actors like you. I think the things that they've been in, they, they, they're incredible. I love Pedro Pascal. I think he's always good. However, I have such a rigid idea of who Joel is over the course of just playing that game dozens of times over uh, how long has that game been out 10 years now yeah. that it, it it's still in some ways now that i've seen this first episode it still kind of feels like someone cosplaying as joel at times uh not necessarily in a bad way that sounds kind of bad but I think it's it, it's definitely taken some getting used to that's for sure i would say bella ramsey I was a little more okay with, I think, at least right off the bat, just because I feel like she's bringing a little more, I feel like she's playing a different Ellie, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I think in terms of like, I'll start with Pedro Pascal, like I'm a huge fan of him in obviously The Mandalorian, Game of Thrones. I also liked him in um, a film he did for Netflix a few years ago called Triple Frontier. Um, that was kind of like a heist movie. Um but I was unsure how he was going to fill in as Joel, kind of like you. Uh, Joel is a character who I also have a very sort of rigid idea of who he is. And the idea also of like Pedro Pascal just coming in and trying to do his best Troy Baker impression. Mm -hmm. I don't know how well that really would have landed for me. Yeah. Um, I think what we was delivered with his performance has some inklings of Troy Baker, right? I think that a couple of times throughout the episode, you kind of, you hear a little mm -hmm. bit more of that uh, drawl that he has, if you will, or even just some of the mannerisms. But 
you know, the portrayal of Pedro, I think, and this is based off of obviously that 90 minute premiere episode, um, it feels a little softer in some regards, if you will. You know, you get plenty of instances where we get to see more into Joel and how he's been shaped by what happened before the outbreak and what he's had to do in the 20 years since the outbreak. And if anything, I found it to be an approach that took me two watches to really appreciate. Because at first I was kind of like, well, he's not as hardened as he should be with all he's gone through. Mm -hmm. But then on a rewatch, I was like, well, this is a show I'm going to be watching for nine weeks. And not everybody's going into this with the same love of The Last of Us that we have. And so I understand why maybe his portrayal is not as, you know, hardened or cruel in some ways right out of the gate, because it might be a little hard to form a bond with that uh, protagonist for some for the next, you know, like I said, nine weeks. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I do think, I, I think the, the parts that feel off to me are when they have word for word scene recreations from the game that show up in the show. I would say sure. seeing all the other newer scenes that fill in backstory that wasn't in the game, those usually I can just buy into Pedro Pascal as Joel. I think he's very good. But but it's really weird when in in the first episode at the beginning when Sarah when when he comes home and Sarah's waiting for him at the couch and that's basically word for word from the game. And yeah. that to me is a little weird. I've been having trouble getting over that Joel, that Pedro Pascal Joel. But the other Pedro Pascal's Joels in other scenes have been fine. Like, I think he is, he's fantastic. I agree with what you're saying, where he's he's a little softer, um, not not as not as cold, maybe, as as he seems at the beginning of, of the time skip in, in the game. And I think that, you know, for a series, this might, and, you know, we'll, later on we'll get a little bit more into, like, the liberties that they're that they've taken already out the gate in terms of building on the source material or fleshing out certain aspects differently than they did in the uh, in the game originally, but I think with his character, it's interesting to explore perhaps other facets to him mm -hmm. in a way that they didn't in the game. While you know it's not going so far off script that all of a sudden we have a protagonist that's unrecognizable, but I find that in an adaptation like this. It, that creativity is what I'm looking for to build off of from that, you know, very rudimentary sort of one-to-one -one idea of what most people want from an adaptation or what I suppose a section of fans want. Mm -hmm. You know, I find that some of the liberties that they might take that are removed from, you know, those one-to-one -one line reads could actually be interesting in facilitating perhaps more complexity to a character that was already, you know, fairly complex in the game. And that kind of is just what I view as being uh, one of the benefits of them adapting this. And of course, having Neil Druckmann involved and then being paired with another creative like uh, Mazin, who, of course, is more attuned to the medium of television to tell a story. Um, I just find that there it feels like there's a character that is in very capable hands of not only the creatives, but of Pedro Pascal, because he's able to, you know, uh, facilitate, I think, with in a very short amount of time that he can kind of grapple with the emotional stakes of The Last of Us. Totally. And I think you bring up another good point with just the fact that there's three very smart people doing, you know, you've got Pedro Pascal playing Joel, you've got Neil Druckmann writing, and then you've got Craig Mason producing, show running, uh, I think directing a couple episodes, maybe. I don't know. That, that's just kind of me guessing. I assume he does. But uh, I think he directed the premiere and Druckmann's directing the second, I believe. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, but like it, it's, it's all in very capable hands, right? So 
I, I really do think like my issues with Joel in those few scenes are more just on me because I've played the game so many times. I imagine a lot of people haven't played the game. They're going into it. They see Pedro Pascal deliver an excellent performance in this first uh, episode. And then you also have to consider that I'm sure a lot of people played The Last of Us once when it came out or played it once, you know, a sometime between now and then and now they are checking out the show and these scenes they might see them be like oh i remember this from the game but they don't realize that like when sarah says i sell drugs i sell hardcore drugs uh is 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 an exact line pulled straight from the game so uh, i i definitely have an not an interesting perspective necessarily but i guess just a a perspective that's been beaten to death by the game <laughs> Well, I think, you know, you and I are similar in that sense, right? Is that it's a game, as I've said now multiple times, a game that we love, a game that we've played a handful of times, more probably than I would say most mm -hmm. people probably have. Um, so, you know, when you are faced with an adaptation that has those direct moments, it's kind of almost impossible for us to, you know, separate our love of the delivery in the game to what is on screen. For myself, at least, I'll say that I was a fan of the fact that so far the lines that they've taken directly from the game in this point in the script have been ones that feel essential to establishing them, right? And, you know, I'm not going to say I remember word for word everything that's said in the game, but at the same time, you know, the lines that stick out to me are like the one that you mentioned. But at the same time, there are new lines that are being introduced between characters. And, you know, this gets into um, me wanting to chat a little bit about Tess, mm -hmm. uh, who's played by Anna Torv of uh, Mindhunter fame. And, you know, She's a character that in the game I was a fan of, obviously, but didn't feel like we explored nearly enough. And with the show, you know, I'm not going to say again that they're going to lead us down some brand new narrative path with her. But in such a short amount of time, I feel that they've expanded on her character in a way that it makes it more apparent more quickly how you know, integral she is to not only Joel's survival, but the pair of their survival. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think she's great. She might be one of my favorite characters in this adaptation so far, just because of, because I always thought Tess was a good character in the game in terms of a character who, who like was kind of mysterious, just gave enough backstory and her relationship with Joel, I thought was really interesting. So it's cool in the show that they kind of kept a lot of that, but we're just getting to spend more time with Tess. I mean, I'm thinking about when you're first introduced to Tess and uh, Robert's men have her held hostage and she convinces it or the bomb goes off and then she's able to go back. And during that conversation with Robert, she's saying, uh, Joel's, I'm not going to have Joel beat you up. I'll tell him just some teens did this and I was like wait that doesn't make sense because the first thing she says in the game is I got jumped by Robert's men but then in the show I'm thinking like okay well how are they going to get to Robert and then you get to that scene and she says yeah I hate this guy I just told him that to get away and I do want you to beat the shit out of Robert when you get the chance <laughs> and then the whole Robert stuff plays out differently but I think that that interaction is it is really good and, and it's cool seeing a different side of Tess and also a little more backstory leading up to the moments that kind of kick off the events of The Last of Us. For sure. And I think that, you know, the dialogue that she has with Joel is so important because, it, again, it so quickly shows the viewer why this character is important to Joel, the protagonist, but it doesn't 
rely on like, oh, maybe there's a romantic relationship here, right? Mm -hmm. I think, again, that's something from the game too, but I think that they do a really good job of just very quickly showing that, you know, she has his ear and she can tell it like when he wants to storm off and just go for Robert right away, she tells him like, you need to catch a breath yeah. because otherwise he's going he's to realize, yeah, he's going to skip and you can't go out all Clint Eastwood like. And, um, but at the same time, you know, expanding a little bit more on, you know, her sense of humor or whatnot. Like she has a couple of really funny clapbacks in this, like mm -hmm. when Joel starts trying to talk about uh, like the architecture of the building that they're scaling. And she's like, well, this has been construction corner with yep. Joel Miller. Yep. And it just shows like in this world where everybody is fighting over ration cards. And if anybody says something the wrong way, you could get killed. At the end of the day, though, these are two people that can bullshit with one another, which if anything shows how they have a relationship that differs with kind of the times, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, her also calling Marlene the Che Guevara of Boston made me laugh out yeah. loud, um, which kind of just shows that even when there's people pointing guns in her face, like straight up does not give a shit, we'll get that last jab. And even if maybe they have a little history together. Yeah, I, I was waiting for Joel to call her the, the queen of the fireflies because that's a line, once again, that I remember from the game that's always stood out. And uh, I was waiting for it, but didn't say it, which is probably good considering what we just talked about. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I think that's, again, one of the, and I'm going to keep coming back to this because, you know, so many people have been on both sides of the fence about, like, what makes a good adaptation. But I think, if anything, again, thinking about how long the series is going to be and how we're going to be, obviously, with Joel the entire time, giving other characters that might be either recurring or cameos, giving them the time early on while you have them to, you know, make their mark on an episode or a scene is almost more important, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think that omitting a line from Joel, who we're going to be with for the next eight episodes, is fine when you're going to take another character that might not be there as long, but mm -hmm. give them something interesting and memorable to say, which in my mind is what an adaptation should be, right? Because at the end of the day, if I want to relive a line, I'm going to go play the game for, you know, whatever, the sixth or seventh time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, out of curiosity, what did you think of the pacing of this first episode because it is paced a little strange I, I thought not in a bad way but you open with that clip from a talk show in what is it 1968 mm -hmm. or something like that and it skips yep. 2003 and you spend like 30 minutes uh in 2003 and then it skips ahead and like you're in the uh the the qz for basically the entire episode and i didn't mind the pacing but having played the game so many times i was like waiting for the next thing to happen i was like okay now this needs to happen that that needs to happen yeah. did, did, did you experience that at all were you like waiting for things to happen yeah so after the first act when we flash forward again to 2023 you know i thought that entire section in the qz was i don't i hesitate to say rushed right i think that it definitely felt a little streamlined mm -hmm. in getting to them escaping and breaking out right which I'm not necessarily opposed to. It definitely was noticeable in terms of like the leaps that they were taking, but I think that that's only something that you people like you and I could really notice because we're so familiar with the game and the story, but I would say that, you know, that introducing of, you know, Ellie and then the Fireflies and then Joel and Tess, you know, all joining together, it did feel definitely fa like fast forwarded if you will. Yeah. Um, at the same time though, you know, Taking, trying to take a step back because I watched it twice with people that hadn't seen it and weren't aware of, uh, that hadn't played the game at least. And I asked them their opinion on it and they were like, I mean, how long are they supposed to spend in the QZ? And so it was one of those things where I was like, I mean, anything that has more of the interactions or 
one or two extra set pieces from the game that were there. I mean, I would have appreciated that. But at the same time, I think getting out of the QZ and going out into, you know, the greater landscape of America is where we get to see them maybe take more creative liberties with the story and seeing what kind of interesting, you know, new creative avenues they could take with that. Yeah. Um, that's, I suppose, a long-winded way of saying it. it didn't bug me, but it was noticeable. Yeah, I, I, th- I, that's kind of how I feel as well. Like, I think about the whole Robert Chase stuff where they actually hunt down Robert and go for him in the game. Mm-hmm. And that stuff makes a lot of sense in the game because you're still learning the controls. You're learning sure. you're learning about that world. Uh, it, 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 the game's kind of got a slow build in a sense. And part of me was like, I kind of wanted to see more in the QZ, but also you think about like the QZ is like 10% of the game, right? And like, yeah, you kind of got to get out of there. You got nine episodes, you got you got to travel across the United States. So it makes sense, but but it definitely, it was weird. It, it, it was a weird way to experience that section of the story. Sure. I think I will say for the creative's credit, you know, they do a very good job in a short amount of time, I think, of establishing what life is like in the QZ, mm-hmm. right? Right away, you have this poor child that's been wandering the wasteland and then comes in and you have that moment, which is, you know, almost as heartbreaking, I found, as um, Joel's yeah. loss, yeah, right? Absolutely. Which, we'll, you know, we're going to we're gonna circle back to. But, you know, that moment of just kind of like the guard that's basically feeding this child a script of what they've had to say God knows how mm-hmm. many times. And, you know, it's still heartbreaking for them, but they don't miss a beat in this speech about this to this child that's clearly going to be uh, is infected. And then, of course, you know, you get Joel who doesn't bat an eye when he's the one that has to dispose of the child's body. But then also when he goes to the uh, the Fedra soldier who's in charge of the work detail and it's like you can sweep or you can clean shit. And that's what you're going to do for, you know, the next day to eat yeah. or probably the rest of your life if you stay there. Um, and I think they just do a good job of establishing the stakes of the world without maybe making us spend an inordinate amount of time in the QZ and just kind of like beat that horse to death mm-hmm. about like, oh, well, this is what life is like there. And it's like they give us the one done kind of examples and then they move on to progress them finding Ellie and moving out. Yeah. Um, one one character casting that I did want to come back to, which will kind of lead us into um, the beginning of the outbreak, which takes up, you know, that first act of the episode is uh, Nico Parker as Sarah, Joel's daughter. Um, I thought she did a really great job of, you know, kind of stealing all everybody's hearts and understanding why she's so important to Joel early on and, you know, giving people that, again, are not familiar with Joel's arc and journey and struggle with why he is the way that he is. And, you know, it. I think it becomes apparent very quickly, you know, why he is that guy that in the face of, you know, either getting gunned down by a soldier and trying to protect a child or, you know, having to do that unthinkable thing of um, being in charge of like disposing of a child's body, like their relationship does a great amount of like legwork in establishing why he is that way uh, very quickly. How did you find, you know, their interactions in that first act? Yeah, I thought it was great. I I thought she did a fantastic job with that character. Uh, Not only that, but like you're saying, I really enjoyed all of the extra scenes that we got between those two. I think seeing her at school, even though it was very brief, and like when she goes to the, the, the watch store to get the watch fixed, and that's kind of when you realize, oh, today's the day that the, the outbreak happens. And 
that scene in particular rewatching, I think I appreciated it even more just because it felt really natural in the way she reacted. She was kind of confused. She goes to the neighbor's house, asks what's wrong. The neighbor's like, oh, people don't believe in Jesus. And okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think you're right. I think she really is, I, at least I imagine she's really able to capture the audience uh, and, and get a good understanding of, of Joel and Sarah's relationship. And, you know, I, I enjoyed seeing her with Tommy as well. Like, when the shit hasn't hit the fan yet, you know, she comes in and kind of makes fun of Joel. And then, uh, you know, Tommy kind of like metaphorically gives her a high five for making his life difficult and stuff. And, and just that sort of banter back and forth, I thought, uh, worked really well, um, to, to not only, you know, set the, set the stage for the day of the outbreak, but also provide the relationship between all of these characters. And I'm really excited, at the, again, the prospect of this being an adaptation that's going to take some creative liberties because, and this is based off the first episode, but the liberties that they take with the storytelling and the world building and even the interactions between characters, what they've done is they've nailed the characters and the way in which they're portraying them. So whenever they want to do these little deviations throughout the episode, it doesn't feel like things that are either just, you know, these senseless diversions before you get to like the day of the actual outbreak or the moment of the outbreak, or they don't feel like they're, you know, adding on to a character in a way that doesn't necessarily make sense. Each of these scenarios, especially with the neighbors, right, it just furthermore, it gives you the sense of who these characters are. And at the same time, I'll say when she goes over to the neighbors, you get one of the creepiest moments of the whole episode for me, yeah. which was when, you know, she's looking through the DVDs and then you have the old woman in the back out of focus that's kind of like contorting as if she's almost in throes of becoming infected. And, you know, that's a really quiet mm -hmm. moment, but it's a moment that was incredibly chilling and stuck with me as one of the standouts, just because it represents the way in which even in these new moments that you might be creating that aren't parts of the original fiction of the game, you can still insert these little moments that don't have to be, you know, you got attacked by another infected mm -hmm. or there's another slaver here, you know, I think that might be one of the keys to having somebody like Craig involved in the creative side of it. And that, you know, he's very good, I think, and he proved with Chernobyl at having these very understated moments of dread, mm -hmm. right? It, very rarely, I think, especially early on in something like Chernobyl, you know, it's more about the way that he conveys information rather than, you know, people immediately have boils and they're dying from cancer and all these yeah. things. Um, and I think that in this, the something that you mentioned was that 1960s cold open you know that was i think a really smart way to approach this it didn't immediately give people what you might assume a video game adaptation would mm -hmm. right because i think while video game adaptations have come a long way the majority of people probably still just view them as these big massive explosive popcorn fests and the fact that he's able to introduce this very chilling reality of what's going to occur you know in I think it was like 40 years or something. Um, but it's just people having a conversation and you don't have to have this big uproarious moment. It's more about how people are reacting to the information that I found to be really, really disturbing. Mm -hmm. And it sets the perfect tone of just, you know, things are only getting worse from this moment on and it's pretty much inevitable. Yeah, I mean, in that, in that conversation at the beginning, that talk show conversation, you can see the host as like just his his demeanor changes throughout that conversation and by the end he's just kind of like well we'll be back after this break um one <laughs> really sucks all the air out yeah of the room. 
One thing I wanted to point out, though, that I noticed on a second viewing was uh, when Joel is taking Sarah to school and they walk out of the, the garage and the neighbors next door start talking to him. Uh, there, there's a point where you see the old the, you see the man with the old lady and something comes out of her mouth and he like kind of puts it back in. And my first guess yeah. was like, oh, she just can't eat. She's just having trouble eating food. And watching it the second time, I was like, oh, that's not food. I'm pretty sure that is the fungus thing that comes out of their mouth, which yeah. is new to this show, and it is creepy. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's another great example of how you can take creative, again, creative liberty from the source material, because the first time I watched it, I thought it was uh, a piece of the biscuit that, that that's they what offered I Joel. Because they brought up biscuits, and maybe it is, but like on that second watch, I was like, no, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure that's the fungus. <laughs> Well, that's why I thought that when Joel is like, yeah, I don't want any piece of that is because it's like he's been touching this grandmother's face yeah. or whatever, or his mother's face. And then he's like touching the biscuits. And I was like, yeah, I'd fucking say no to that, too. But um, especially, you know, on the second watch, because I didn't realize that it was spore still, because when she's bent over, you know, eating one of her family members, I thought it was just strands of hair in her mouth. And then when I went back and rewatched, it, I was like, oh, no, they are actually kind of building upon the morphology yeah. of them, which again, it it doesn't rewrite what the fungal infection is. It's just this nice little aesthetic that um, makes them terrifying in a new way, perhaps for people like you and I, that, you know, we would still be scared of the running infected, but at the same time, you know, having a surprise in store like that, I think is uh, a treat for not only people seeing it for the first time, but people that think they have a pretty good idea of uh, what to expect. Yeah, yeah, that definitely took me off guard. But uh, in terms of, you know, that moment uh, in that first act that I think we've all been uh, kind of skating around uh, with Joel and, you know, Sarah's fate, right? And having her uh, die in his arms, quite literally, right? You have the soldier that shoots at them and then she's fatally wounded. Um, I was unsure if that was going to be as upsetting uh, as it was in the game, just because, again, I've played the game so many times and it's never not upsetting in the game, but I was like, is, this would be the sort of the test for whether mm -hmm. or not these actors were up to it um, to, you know, capture the magic of that moment as upsetting as it is. But to have an example of something that the first time I played it in the game, I was like, oh, this is like a cinematic moment from one of the best movies I've ever seen. Right. That caliber. Mm -hmm. And to see that moment unfold, it kind of sold me on even if we have characters that come in and have a deviation or two in their portrayal if they can match the intended emotional stakes of that and carry it in a way that doesn't necessarily feel like, oh, they're just, you know, they watched the trailer from the cutscene from the game and they kind of match that, right? Um, did that scene land as powerful for you as it did for me? This is a weird one because I feel like once again, it played out very similarly to the game and I feel like I am numb to that scene at this point. Like I, I, I have seen it so many times uh, and obviously the first few times I saw it destroyed me, uh, in the game and seeing it in the show was sad, but I, I don't know. I, I kind of want to watch this episode with, with people who've never played the game, uh, have very mm -hmm. little idea of what's going to happen and see what their response is. Because I, I, I feel like my response is just numb at this point, you know, cause like, Right when it opens, I'm waiting for Sarah to die because I know that has to happen for this whole thing to work out. And I imagine it's going to happen in somewhat of a similar fashion because the way it happens in the game, like you said, is 
like very high caliber, you know, visual storytelling that I would expect in a movie. So I thought I thought the actors brought a lot to that scene. I thought they did a great job. I really like Tommy's response to just when he's like, Tommy, help. And then Tommy's just like, Joel. And that's kind of kind of it. But but yeah, it it's a tricky one because other people have asked me this and it's just like, I don't know. I've gotten kind of numb to it. For me personally, the 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 scene that I thought affected me more emotionally uh, was the girl who wanders up to the QZ, which we mentioned earlier, just because that was new. Yeah. I hadn't seen that. And it took a while to process that, I guess, like on two levels, because when she shows up, uh, for a second there, I believed them. I was like, oh, okay, they're they're actually taking care of people. And then I saw the red light and I was like, oh, okay, never mind. And then I saw the needle and I was like, could that be like, are they euthanizing her or not? I don't know. And then when it cuts to her shoe later and it's like, oh, okay. Um, so for me, I thought that was a little more of a powerful moment, I suppose. Sure. You know, to that moment that you just referenced with the little girl, you know, the first time I watched the episode, I, I must've been, you know, taking a sip of water or something. Cause I missed the fact that there was the red light that they showed. And so I was like in the dark about their fate. It was like, I thought that it was left up to whether, you know, could be they nicked their knee or it could be a bite yeah. or a scratch. And then the second time when I noticed the light, I was like, why did they show the light there? I feel like it would have been so much more impactful had they not mm. included that because the realization when, you you know, of course, Joel has to dispose of the body then. Um, it that's, that's like a little nitpicky thing. That didn't land as hard for me the second time when I had already realized what their yeah. fate was. Um, but at the same time, I think, again, that's a testament to the potential for the series having these smaller, very emotionally driven moments that don't have to be revolving around the types of moments that you would assume a show based on a video game would be, which, again, is like a slaver raider attack for the 19th time. Or, yeah. you know, I think that that's where Druckmann being involved is going to give the show a potential to capitalize on the smaller moments that, you know, we talked about in depth um, for Safe Room about, you know, finding a journal entry or seeing the environmental storytelling play out. I'm interested to see how many of these types of little moments of, you know, realities about the world and how that shapes them and their perception of it and them and their actions as people um, and seeing how that can really, you know, facilitate lots of little moments like that that maybe mm -hmm. stray away from the inevitable, you know, raider shootouts and, uh, you know, infected moments. Yeah, and, and I think... Like like you said before, I think Craig Mazin's a really good at this. Like we saw it in Chernobyl. It's just like not overtly showing how messed up the world is or the state of things are, but he's very good at just like having little vignettes about characters who may not be big players, but they are there to serve that world and to kind of help with world building. Um, I will say with that scene in particular, do you think a lot of people who've never played the game would understand that that red light means they're infected. Um, cause that is something like pretty overt in the game. It's like green light. Cause I think even it says, okay, in the game and then red oh, does it. It does. Yeah. Um, so like for me seeing the red light, I assumed that was, uh, infected because I played the game. I guess red means bad usually. So probably. Yeah. Still. I mean, I think you could have had that same, the same realization of red means you're infected when, you know, you get to the very end of the episode and the mm -hmm. guard finds them, right? And, you know, 
I don't know. I, I don't see that that being included in the scene that we were just talking about um, necessarily communicates that better yeah. because I think that, I mean, general, I feel like I'm getting a little in the weeds with that, but it was just one of those little details where I saw the potential for, again, like you said, these little vignettes mm -hmm. of characters that don't matter to the end result of the protagonists or their journey. But at the same time, you know, it's further informing you about the world and how routine this mm -hmm. is because, you know, this is not the first child. Obviously, if Joel didn't have that experience with Sarah, this probably still wouldn't be the first child that uh, he had to lay to rest, right? And just to see him, you know, being uh, seemingly unmoved by it, yeah, uh, I think, again, carries that emotional weight uh, of understanding, you know, how he is such a changed man. Uh, one character that you mentioned also that I skipped over was uh, Gabriel Luna, who plays Tommy, right? And he doesn't necessarily have a great deal to say in this episode, but I think... Again, like you had mentioned, you know, you have this banter between the family when he comes over for breakfast and he's like going through their leftovers and that. And he's just like very quickly establishes the relationship he has with everybody. Mm -hmm. um, also, like a little story detail that they changed was, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure him being in prison was or him being in jail was not in the game. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't why Joel had to leave the house. Yeah, no, the the prison thing was new. I don't remember why Joel had to leave the house in the game. I think he was checking on the neighbors yeah. or something, but it was one of those things where I was like, again, just providing a little more context to a character without having it be this massive scene that plays out. I liked because you get that little detail from Tommy where he's like, it wasn't my fault this time, right? Yeah. Which kind of indicates what his past has been like. Also, I think they mentioned in the game, but I don't remember. Like, you know that he was a part of Desert Storm. Mm -hmm. He was a combat veteran, um, which you tell from like a little bumper yep. sticker that's on the back of his truck. Um, so like little moments like that, I think, again, it's not going to fundamentally rewrite a character or rewrite the trajectory of the narrative, but that's the opportunity that's there. And it seems from this first episode, mm -hmm. they're capitalizing on the fact that, well, we've got these people for some of them for another eight weeks, Let's continue to flesh them out perhaps in ways that maybe Druckmann himself would have wanted to, right? I think that that yeah. was something I was talking with some people about. It was like, well, not to say that he wants to you know, rewrite entire sections of the story or characters, but any creative that, I mean, you know, you write films, you've written uh, video scripts plenty of times and reviews and whatnot, you know, revisiting your work can be painful sometimes because, all the time. you know, you're seeing, <laughs> yeah, all the time. I might be underplaying that a little bit, not to get too personal for myself, but it is the type of thing where it's like, you can't not find faults in what you've done. So the inclination would be, if you had a reason to, I would go back and mm -hmm. tweak this or flesh that out a little bit more. Um, and I think that that's going to be an aspect of the show that makes it exciting week to week even if you know you and i know the major plot beats or can sense when a big moment is happening um, i think that that's what could keep fans like us that are so well versed in the last of us um an edge of excitement perhaps mm -hmm. if that might if that's the right word for yeah it. absolutely i mean it's also just one of the benefits of being a tv show over over a game like i feel like one of the main concerns that people had going into the last of us show is that the game already did it really well. So like what more could the TV show have to offer? And to some extent, I kind of felt that way too. But having seen this first episode, I realized how limiting that is because the medium of television is very different from games. And like a lot of these little vignettes that we're talking about and that hopefully we'll see in future episodes, 
couldn't be done in a game, right? Like it would be really weird if you're playing The Last of Us and all of a sudden you're not Joel, you're this little girl who wanders into the QZ and then get, gets euthanized at the beginning, you know? Like that that wouldn't make sense. Like you wouldn't be able to be with Tess when Robert has uh, her captive, you know? Like, like all these details that like are impossible to do, you know, in a game. Like, sure, you could do it, but I feel like the game would be weird and bloated and people would be like, why am I playing as these characters that don't fit what's 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 happening? So, I, I, yeah, I mean, to, to agree with you, I'm very excited to see what they do because I feel like there's so much more that can be expanded on outside of Joel and Ellie's story. And, and I think we will see that. I mean, like we've talked about it, it's, it's a strength of this first episode. And I, this world is 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 vast, and there's so much that can be covered, even within sort of Joel and Ellie's circle of characters that they meet throughout that game. Like, like maybe we'll get more backstory on uh, Tommy's wife or something that he that he marries in uh, in the dam section, you know, where he Joel needs his wife for the first time. Although, I'm curious to see how Joel and Tommy's relationship will differ because it sounds like it is different from this first episode. Um, I don't know if you remember from this episode, but it sounds like they're not 20 years estranged like they were in, um, or 10 years estranged or 15 years or whatever it was like they are in right. the game. Well, that's an aspect too that I think is really exciting because if anything, you know, again, keep coming back to like this idea of a one-to-one -one adaptation, but in something like that, it's like, well, these are two characters that I always want more of, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that especially like going into the sequel, it was great to see them have this relationship that gets fleshed out more in the early hours of that game. And so going into a series adaptation and they have the opportunity to be like, well, instead of having this back and forth bickering that's just from the game, let's see them when they're getting along more. Like it's the type of thing where it's like the drive is still for them to reconnect. This is the last person alive that outside of you know, Tess and his immediate QZ uh, community that he still knows or has a connection to or is even, you know, related mm -hmm. to. And so getting to see them not have that adversarial relationship, more or less, right from the jump, and to see them, you know, have scenes that amount to more than just like, you shouldn't have joined the Fireflies or I yeah. should have joined the Fire, Like, that kind of stuff, just rehashing that, I'm sure that's, of course, going to be a point of contention. Joel says as much to Marlene, right? He's like, well, you yep. stole my brother away from me to join the Fireflies. At the same time, though, they've been in contact and they have this more of a communicative relationship that I think, especially with somebody like Gabriel Luna, who I think is a great actor as well, um, that just opens up a new avenue for fleshing their relationship out more, which, again, I don't view that as being a negative. I'm also, you know, I'm not as precious, I suppose, about them taking specific elements and changing mm -hmm. it from the source material, right? They need to be recognizable. That's kind of like my benchmark. It's like, so long as these characters still stand and re generally resemble who they were in the game, if you want to have alter their relationship slightly while not completely erasing it, um, I personally don't have a huge problem with that, especially if it gets more face-to-face -face time mm -hmm. with them. Yeah, I, I think it makes sense in the context of the show too, right? Because I feel like Joel's a little more on board to leave and transport Ellie. Because uh, I was thinking about it today. Like, I feel like the game did a very good job of leaving you with no other options. It's like, okay, well, 
Joel doesn't really want to do this, but still he's going to do it anyway because, like you said, you know, Tess can whisper into his ear and make him do things, and that's part of it. But and in the show, and it at first I was like, but what reason does Joel have to leave right now? Because I I can't imagine he'd want to right now. But but I feel like him worrying about his brother is like such a good way to kind of push him out of the QZ a little more uh, with a little less friction, maybe. Um, well, that's also, that's what the entire, you know, Robert interaction is based mm-hmm. around, right? With the car battery yeah. and stuff and how they want to be able to, you know, escape and get away basically. Um, so yeah, you know, I think that is, I don't know, you know, again, like I think that that's a stronger reason for him to want to leave and to go along with this rather than just, you know, he is so resentful or still, you know, grappling with the trauma of losing his daughter, which they are obviously, this is another benefit of TV, right? They're going to expand upon that over the course of the entire season. But when you're going to be with this character for as long as you are in the show, it's the type of thing where they don't need to come on as strong, I think, with that. You know, his resentment to being uh, paired with Ellie or just the fact that, you know, this is digging up old wounds Mm -hmm. and whatnot. I mean... One of the scenes I think that's most telling about that sort of altering on his harshness is when she's cracking the code for the radio, right? And so she not only cracks the code, but he begins to get into a back and forth with her and he stops when Tess comes in. But you see this moment where he's like, I want to continue, but I'm choosing not mm-hmm. to, right? And I think that if this had been Joel Miller from the game, he would have just started barking the entire time yeah. Tess was there, no, even if she came in. And I just think that narratively... That's better to, you know, continue keeping with the pace of the game, but also showing that he is a much more complex character within the course of 90 minutes rather than with a game where, you know, how long is that tutorial section? Like two hours Mm -hmm. or something like that. And it's not all interactions and story development. So I think that, you know, so far with this first episode, they've done a good job of establishing these people, but not really getting bogged down in anything that feels like it's just being done in service of perhaps fans of the series. Right. Because mm-hmm. that was something that, um, at least in my friend group, I was talking to people about that were a little hesitant to dive into it because they're like, well, I haven't played the games. And, you know, granted, as much as we've played them, it's hard for us to say, but I genuinely felt like this was very accessible um, and didn't feel like it was something that was overly catering to fans, if you will, of yes. the game series. Did you kind of get that sense? Yeah, I agree. And, and that's why I'm super curious to see. I mean, everyone I've seen it with has played the game at least a few times, so it it it's a little hard to like. Like, I I want to see this with people who haven't played the game before and see what they think. I'm I'm really curious, and and I I know that's a point I've come back to a couple times, but I'm just really curious because to me, this story in in the game was so profound for me at the time, and I thought it maybe not seemed unique, but was such a masterful way of telling a narrative in a game. And I guess maybe it's like a little inferiority complex, you know, games versus movies, movies being taken more seriously. But I'm really curious to see what people who just have no stake in the video game at all to see if like, yeah, this story is actually good and interesting, uh, even for people who just play video games, you know, like I remember when Last of Us came out, I'd like show my family and friends who didn't play games like look at this and they'd be like oh yeah it looks 
looks pretty real cool and that would be it you know um and <laughs> right. then i try to explain the story I've few, to him i've had a few examples yeah. like that in my life too. i'd like try to explain the story to him they were like okay that's cool uh but i don't want to play a game and i'm like yeah okay i guess that's fair but i think the story's worth it and even now like when people just get into video games i'm like yeah you gotta play the last of us you haven't played the last of us play the last of us um so yeah i'm super curious to to hear what more people think about this as the season goes on yeah, you know, I guess I, I can't accurately answer that either then because of just how, you know, close I am to the material. But I, I would say that I struggle to think of a moment that was one of these moments that I can't stand and stuff like this, where it has to be this kind of like this massive Easter egg moment or reference mm-hmm. moment that kind of just brings a scene to a grinding halt to be like, hey, remember this from the game, right? You know, yeah. I think that the, the example of that would be specific lines of dialogue mm-hmm. yep. that are taken from the game. But at the same time, you know, again, I don't view that as being something that it's like, oh, that's an inside joke yeah. or something like that. It's like, no, that's done in service of the fandom. But those lines are still approachable, I feel, to the same exact way that, you know, somebody that hasn't seen it before would interpret it. It's like, oh, I'm getting the sense that I'm inferring that Ellie and her father have a very unique sense of humor when she says, oh, I got the money by selling hardcore mm-hmm. drugs. Right. I don't think that line lands differently or the intention yeah isn't different whether or not you've played the game or whether you're coming to this fresh because you know it popped up on hbo so i will say though there was one line that i was kind of curious about and it was when um marlene mentions uh riley and she was like well riley wasn't a terrorist that that line stood out because my thought is i know who riley is because i've played the games and i know that tragic backstory of of that uh, but but I, I once again curious to see what people who don't follow the game like would they be like who's Riley I feel like I got to know more about Riley like what, what's going on I imagine the show's going to explore that I feel like it has to at some point um, yeah you know I I think from the trailer that I saw at the end of this week's episode right they did a pre one of those preview mm-hmm. things where they show the clips from the first whatever three or four episodes. I'm pretty sure that there's a clip of the carousel okay. from Left oh, Behind. Oh, I think you're right. Um, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I th- I would imagine they're going to do a flashback that ties into that. Again, it's one of those things that if they don't have that moment, sure, that's a line that you're like, well, we need to dive more into mm-hmm. that. But again, if it's that, it, again, it's difficult to say when you haven't seen the second episode yet. But if it's something that they unpack later in a way that feels natural, which I can only imagine they will, yeah. Um, I would say that that's one of those lines where it's like, sure, that means something to us, but at the same time, it implies to the audience that who's unfamiliar with these arcs, that it's like, oh, Ellie has these people in her life that drastically, you know, had an impact on her and the way that she is, and yet they're not unpacking it because maybe there's baggage there, and you know, they will hopefully find out mm-hmm. just the extent of that baggage and how. Uh, influential it was in kind of crafting her yeah i think that's a good point i think like they could totally get away with withholding that but it it they 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 have to show it at some point um otherwise i don't think that line works and that line could be very weird to people maybe on repeat viewings who finish the season and go back because they enjoyed it and be like wait what like this is kind of a throwaway mention of a character who we don't get any background like even if it's not necessarily flashback i'd hope at some point Ellie is going to tell Joel or someone who Riley was. Because um, sure. do we even really see that in the game? I don't, like, she hints at who Riley is in the game, but I don't think she actually recounts the events to Joel. 
at least that yeah, we see. I think I think she has a line about like the knife was gifted to her from Riley or yeah. something like that. Maybe uh, there's something right. like that, but then they unpack it um, later. There's also have you read the graphic novel by any chance? I read the first part of it when the game came out in 2013 because it came with the special edition. I don't remember what happens. <laughs> that's just a random aside, but that's about her and Riley's uh, relationship. Okay. Um, I think I read that before I played Left... It's called Left Behind, right? The DLC? The DLC's Left Behind, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. But anyways, that, again, like, just an example of supplemental material that doesn't feel like it's necessary to go into mm -hmm. for the comic, but at the same time, you know, just fleshing out that world and, you know... That might be an example of, because I think Druckmann wrote the comic as well. So just the idea that, again, like, is not opposed to expanding on certain elements of the story, while at the same time don't always necessarily have to be these earth-shattering realizations mm -hmm. or revelations. Um, but, you know, when you craft characters as strong as these, any backstory is, uh, is appreciated, I think. Yeah. But uh, in terms of, like, moments that really stood out to you, were there any set, like, set-piece moments that... We didn't cover that stood out to you. One, any of those sort of one-to-one -one adaptations that they uh, that they shot that you thought were well done? Uh, I think I really liked the scene that is from Sarah's point of view in the back of the car, which is also taken from the game. I mean, in the game, you have full control over the camera, but it's still from behind. Um, and just seeing the world fall apart and that that one scene, I think, is pretty pretty awesome. Like like. A lot of lot of impressive visuals too. I feel like like things get worse. They're driving through the neighborhood. They get on the freeway. The freeway's packed. They drive off road. They go downtown. You see the airplanes fly over and crash and stuff. And just watching it escalate over a very short amount of time. I thought I, I thought they did a very good job of uh, of that and just selling how like overnight the world fell apart. Yeah, and I think that. Again, coming back to the fact that they build that world a little bit more before that, you know, it gives you context at least for, you know, how suddenly things can change. And, you know, I'm kind of a sucker for in infection stories when, you know, you get these little breadcrumbs of things that are beginning to unravel. But, you know, the populace usually uh, doesn't pick up on them until it's far too late. And the intensity with which you get to see that uh, play out, as you said, was very well done. Um, I also, you know, the fact that they took that moment and did it one for one from the game i thought was a perfect use of mm -hmm. you know that idea of what an adaptation should be because there is no better way to you know have that play out right and you know hopefully moving forwards they have the wherewithal to view certain scenes that were in the game and it's like no that was the best way to direct this scene yeah. to direct this moment at the same time nothing's perfect there's probably a few moments that are from the game that you could take and portray them from a different point of view or amend them in some way that could make moments that, you know, may, might not be these massive milestones in their journey. They could be a smaller moment, but just telling a smaller moment in a more unique way, that could be where it helps to, you know, deviate from that one-to-one -one adaptation. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I mean, kind of to that point, I think one other scene that I, I did like, maybe not a scene, but I guess just a, a, a motif more or less was, uh, I like how when uh they're escaping and that soldier holds them up um and basically was like you, you get hung for this um that kind of happens in the game too right ellie stabs him and they react i think joel just punches him with the butt of a gun or something like that uh and it feels very just like oh yeah okay joel punched a guy 
because he does that. But I liked how they connected it to that opening scene. I thought the flashback was maybe we didn't need to see that. Like, I think I was able to figure that out without that flashback. But I did like how they were able to draw those parallels um, for that character. And I think, like, it gives him more motivation. It's like, it's like okay, there is still, like, a, a Joel that is still getting over, not over, you know, his, his loss. And he's very <laughs> angry and has a lot of issues that he needs to work out, as you see as he beats that guy's face to a pulp. Yeah, <laughs> kind of reminded me of uh, that scene in the Batman when he just like fucking unloads on that guy's face and turns it into Play-Doh, mm-hmm. basically. Um, but I, an element of that scene, again, that I liked, that is just tying more significance to characters and actions that play out, right? Obviously, there's the scene early on when he's dealing with that soldier and they have that kind of like back alley dealing. But at the same time, I think it reestablishes, you know, how quickly people can change up in this new world, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't matter that that guy knows him, the consequences can yeah. still be the same. And, you know, so that's a reiterating of that. But also, and I don't remember if it was the case in the game or not, but Ellie's reaction to Joel, you know, going yard on that guy's face, it's, you know, it's not as horrifying mm-hmm. as the look on Tessa's face, right? It's almost like, oh, this person will do that to people that threaten me, yeah. right? And I think that, again, that's a moment where you can instill another layer of complexity to certain characters or you can just kind of show how the, they are in the moment rather than I think in the game she just says something like well that was crazy mm-hmm. or something like that but I don't remember it being as sort of just a visceral moment where it's like oh she's not as horrified by this act of violence as somebody else is yeah. um, and she also doesn't tell him to stop I think Tess tells him to stop mm-hmm. at one point um, which kind of again informs Ellie's the character we know the least about, I think, from this episode, right? There's only a couple of scenes where you get the sense of like, oh, she's sassy and she's, you know, a hothead and willing to uh, do what she needs to do to survive. But she's the one that we know the least about. And I think that little moments like that do a good job of making it apparent why she's important before telling us. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know why she's important, but I think they do a good job of at least taking somebody that we don't know much about, but making them intriguing in a way rather than, you know, just hinting at what's the big surprise every other scene. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, overall, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I enjoyed it more the second viewing, I would say. I'm happy I did end up watching it twice. I think because it was able, I, I think because I had already like committed to the fact that Troy Baker wasn't Joel and this, you know, this is, this is Pedro Pascal's Joel. And in that second viewing, I think I was, it, I mean, I was able to appreciate my first viewing, but I think I was able to like fall into that world a little easier. Yeah, I would say that the first time I watched it, like I said, I definitely picked up on little mannerisms that he was clearly borrowing from Baker's portrayal. But on the second viewing, those were not as apparent mm-hmm. because I was more just kind of like, I've accepted the fact that this is not going to be exactly what I remember. And if anything... I'm more appreciative of the fact that, as you know, as you said earlier, right, it went from being, it felt like somebody that was sort of cosplaying as a character to, you know, making it their own in a way that was a little more subtle mm-hmm. than most people probably took it in, took it as, because, you know, again, we're constantly comparing it, whether we want to or not, constantly comparing it to the source material. But it's the type of thing that I removed my my fandom a little bit more the second time and was just like, oh, this is somebody that's, doing an interpretation that is reminiscent while not, you know, completely rewriting 
the ethos, if you will, mm-hmm. of uh, of Joel. And I'd say overall, though, just the cast in general that we've seen uh, was a strong showing overall. And all of the characters, no matter how much time we spend with them, were uh, intriguing in ways that I didn't think they would be just because of, you know, how familiar we are with them. Yeah. Um, and that uh, potential for expanding them even more uh, is very, very exciting, along with, you know, getting to see the uh, clickers, which seem to be the focus of the next episode when they get to the, um, what is it, the state house? Mm-hmm. Yeah, also, uh, one last thing. Shout out to to Marlene's actor, who also is Marlene in the game and in the show. And I thought that was a really cool nod. Like, she's an incredible actor in both, so it was cool seeing her in both. And I'm, I'm excited to see if they expand on Marlene's story a little more. Because she does play a very big role in the game, but she doesn't have a lot of screen time. Um, so, so I hope we get to see a little bit more of her throughout the uh, nine episodes. Yeah, uh, that's a good point, too, because in there, you know, we talked about them sort of streamlining the end part of the QZ. There's definitely more dialogue with her, Mm -hmm. with Joel and Tess, right? When they're kind of walking through those back alleys, there's a little more dialogue between them. So, yeah, I definitely hope that we see her uh, expanded on more. Um, But I'd say that, you know, again, if they're going to be doing flashbacks, which it seems like they're going to with like Left Behind, hopefully, you know, they find the appropriate points in which they could maybe introduce flashbacks to uh, characters such as her to give them a little more context um, and whatnot. But that's the nature of adaptations, right? Yeah. I guess I'm more open to those types of things where I'm like, you know, if it makes sense for the format they're telling the story in, I'm more than happy with them, you know, including information that helps to flesh those yeah. characters out. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll, uh, you and I, I'm sure we'll be uh, comparing notes throughout the course of the season. We get to see a little bit more of The Last of Us. But uh, yeah, I was happy to have you on again, man, to chat about this because it uh, was certainly something that I was, in terms of the episode, was a little trepidatious about in terms of how they would adapt it. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to hear that, uh, you know, it clicked with me and it sounds like it clicked uh, with you more than we thought it would. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I mean, this is, I love talking about The Last of Us and I, you know, very excited to dive into this, into this season. I think it'll be, I think it'll, I, I think it'll be very good after this first uh, episode kind of kick things off. Whether it'll hit the highs of the game for me remains to be seen. Um, but so far, it's off to a really solid start. But uh, before I let you go, why don't you let people know where they can follow your work and your podcast? Uh, you can find my stuff on GameSpot. Actually, when does this podcast go up? Uh, this coming Friday. Okay, yeah. By now, I have a review up for Fire Emblem Engage. Then, um, if you like, if you like strategy games, maybe check that out. Other than that, you can find me on Twitter at Jacob Deck. I don't tweet a lot though. So, and then there's Nuclear Fridge as well, um, which uh, Matt and Stuart, who have also been on this show before, uh, as well as myself, uh, release episodes every Friday. We'll have to get you on soon as well to talk about some shenanigans, whatever the hell Matt, <laughs> whatever's on Matt's mind, I guess. You know, I'm always down to chat uh, shenanigans, whether movies are included or not. I always look forward to chatting with you guys. And uh, yeah, thanks again, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening. and I'll see you guys next week.